children. Come join me down here at the front. Get ready for Children's Church. Take your time. We're not rushing. I'll wait. Kind of feels like I'm getting invaded sometimes. Hey. Well, it's sort of those colors. I just liked it. Is that okay? Very good. I like glasses. It does not. What are we going to do? Okay. Over here, over here, over here. Come on in. Come on in. Okay. Let's calm down. Speaking of impossible prayers. Hey. Let's pray, okay? Let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes and keep our feet on the floor. Dear Jesus, thank you that we can be here this morning, that we can go to children's church, that we can learn from the Bible, we can learn from our teachers, we can be with our friends, and we can learn more about you. Lord, we pray that we would grow up knowing you. Do that for each one of these precious children. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. All right. I think you all ought to start praying for the teachers right about now. Children's Church really not that traumatic, I promise. We want to get out the message outline that you don't have. Ah, I don't know what to do with that. It's going to be one of those unique days when you'll actually like have to think for yourself and write things down. There's no outline today. So, yeah, I've just got a mean streak in there somewhere. We are in Matthew chapter 17 today. And this is one of those passages that people read over and say, that's really cool, but they don't know what to do with it, so they move on. And yet, it's a very significant passage. This passage is what enables, in a sense, the ministry of the rest of the book. And I believe this passage is a very key passage in enabling us to minister and to walk in the Christian life. So turn to Matthew 17. You can open your, your Bibles, your devices, uh, whatever you got. I encourage you always to bring a Bible with you um, so that you can uh, follow along. Matthew 17, we're going to read the first eight verses. 17, 1 through 8. Listen carefully. This is God's Word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us again to this great gospel to learn about your son Jesus. We ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand what's happening here, what we're supposed to learn from this, and how we should respond to it. So help us to consider what it means to follow you and not ourselves. By your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. And as always for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I have a question for you. Is Google God? Is Google God? Columnist Thomas Friedman posed this question in the New York Times in June of 2003. Think of how much has changed in terms of technology, in terms of Google, in the last ten and a half years. But a decade ago, he asked this question in the New York Times, and he quoted the vice president of a then Wi-Fi provider, um, and he wrote that Google, combined with Wi-Fi, is a little bit like God. God is wireless, God is everywhere, and God knows everything. Throughout history, people connected to God without wires, and now for most questions in the world, you can ask Google, and increasingly, you do it without wires. And it sounds kind of funny, but you realize when he said that 10 years ago, it sounds somewhat prophetic. Now, taken from Google, G-O-O-G-O-L, which is the numeral one followed by 100 zeros, signifies how much information Google initially hoped to catalog. Googling has become synonymous with the search for information. You don't tell people, I'm going to look that up. Now you say, I'm going to Google it. Interesting, when Tim Berners-Lee first imagined uh, the web as its inventor, he named it Inquire. It was taken from the book, Inquire Within Upon Everything. And I looked up that book on Amazon, and <coughs> it's actually this really old book of Victorian advice. And he says, I had that book as a child in my parents' house in London. And uh, the book served as sort of a portal to the world of information. Everything on how do you remove clothing stains uh, to how do you invest money. And uh, the original title that Tim Berners-Lee came up with, I think, was more prophetic than he could have imagined. There can be little doubt that what began as a uh, grad school project of a couple 20-something uh, Stanford students is now shaping the world. But how? Few people would deny the convenience of the project that's now this giant company known as Google. And they would, few people would deny the value that it can bring. But there are some very troubling dynamics. One in particular, which is 
the trivialization of knowledge. The trivialization of knowledge. I had to practice saying that. Trivialization. It's not as easy to say as you think. So I, I went and Googled Google, because you can do that. And the 10 most popular Google searches this past Friday, just two days ago, uh, I looked up what were the 10 most popular, and they were, I won't give you all the names, but it was four celebrities, three people who, have, who died last week. I was kind of wondering if anybody Googled them when they were alive. Um, two new movies that are coming out and one athlete. That's what people looked up the most on Friday. It's not exactly the writings of C.S. Lewis or Francis Schaeffer. It's more like Trivial Pursuit. And because of the internet, there is this uh, widening gap, this growing chasm, a divide the size of the Grand Canyon between wisdom and information. Dr. Quentin Schultz of Calvin College writes, the torrent of information that's now at our disposal is little more than endless volleys of nonsense, folly, and rumor masquerading as knowledge, wisdom, and even truth. Chuck Kelly is the president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. New Orleans, obviously one word, has noted Google has changed the relationship of people to information. For the last 400 years, information has been collected on college, university, and seminary campuses. And then you went to the collected information to learn. Today, the information is available anywhere you want. Just Google it. It creates a huge challenge for education at every level. It brings some opportunity, but some challenges. Because Kelly says, rather than now dispensing information, educators at every level have to begin spending much more of their time teaching their students how to evaluate information. He says we have to teach discernment. I think he's right. It's like we drop this giant library card uh, onto the world, but we've removed the classroom that gives us the literacy to read it, and we've removed the education that gives us the ability to interpret it. So we just get tons of information, and often we don't really know what to do with it. For example, if you Google almost anything, and I did a whole bunch of this just to see if it was true, almost every time the top of the results will be the Wikipedia article on that topic. Just pick any random, 10 random topics, 9 out of 10, the first entry will be the Wikipedia article. And the only one it wasn't didn't have a Wikipedia article. And Wikipedia, obviously the online encyclopedia, written primarily by volunteers, and it's been praised for democratizing knowledge, uh, but it's got its fair share of detractors. You know, Wikipedia is a great resource when you're in middle school, uh, pretty good in high school, gets challenged at a lot of college level, and is pretty much not allowed at grad school at all. And so there's scholars who have raised questions about its accuracy. Although, I did read one article that said when it comes to science, its articles are as good as the Encyclopedia Britannica. 
And basically everything else, it's, you know, uh, take, your, take your bet. But science is pretty good. And all this is important because I started looking all this because I came across this word that I didn't know. It was called wikiality. How many of you know what wikiality is? Uh, there's a few that are very embarrassed to admit. Uh, a lot of hands only went up this high. Wikiality was a word coined by Stephen Colbert, clearly a political philosopher. And he defines it as, quote, reality as determined by majority vote. Such as when the astronomers voted Pluto off the list of planets. Colbert notes, any user can log on and make a change to most entries on Wikipedia, although some entries are now locked. But if enough users agree, it becomes true. And he says, if only the entire body of knowledge could work this way, through a new wikiality, we can create a reality that we all agree on. The reality that we just agreed on. And I think that's a huge problem. See, according to the dictionary, reality is defined as the state of being actual. And actual is defined as presently existing in fact. And as President John Adams once said, facts are stubborn things. Whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Reality has been determined by our creator, our sustainer, the one in whom, as the Apostle Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. But if reality is now going to be determined by majority vote, and most of our information in casting that vote comes from Google, then I think Thomas Friedman had a good question, is Google our new God? So what does all this have to do with Matthew 17? actually has a lot to do with it because we have to look back. We get a command in Matthew 17 that's told, uh, we're told to listen to him, listen to Jesus. So we have to look at what has Jesus said. And so you go back to just a few verses earlier in Matthew 16, starting at verse 13, we read, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, that sounds like a majority vote. Jesus knew wikiality way before Stephen Colbert. They said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, is Jesus' divinity to be determined by majority vote? Is the truth of the scriptures to be determined by majority vote? There's actually a project among liberal theologians that does exactly that. They vote on the various verses. This one's true, this one I'm not so sure about, that one's definitely not true, and they got their whole new Bible, and it's an utterly worthless project. But even the apostle Peter, you know, it's clear, uh, they, they would have gotten it wrong by majority vote. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, some other prophet, somebody who's really cool, cooler than us. And when Peter gets it right, and immediately Jesus tells him, that knowledge didn't come from you. It certainly didn't come from Google. 
It comes from God. Verse 17, he says, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's been a few weeks, so what's the last thing that happens before our passage in Matthew 17? Jesus told his disciples he's going to be crucified and killed. He's going to suffer and die, but then he would be resurrected from the dead. And then he follows that up, Matthew 16, starting at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Jesus announces there are some who have heard him speak about his suffering and his death, and they won't die until they see him in his glory. And the someone standing here are Peter, James, and John. And that brings us to our text for this morning, Matthew 17, the transfiguration of the king. And I want you to think of three questions this morning. No blanks in the bullet, no bulletin inserts, just three questions. What do we learn from this? Why should we know this, and how should we respond to this? What do we learn from this? Why should we know this? How should we respond to this? Keep those questions in mind. And as you do that, I want you to place yourself in the shoes of Peter, James, and John. Put yourself in their place. Look through their eyes, hear with their ears. Imagine you're not only there, but you're one of them. They're the only three disciples that Jesus took with him into the home of Jairus when he raised his daughter from the dead. They'll be the only three that he takes with him to Gethsemane when he wrestles with his upcoming crucifixion. And he takes these three with him now up on the mountain. And just imagine that. They have to pick their way through this pathless incline of weather-beaten rock up past the sweet-smelling grass of the foothills, up past the tree line, up to a quiet place where they can stop and pray. And once there, the foot-sore disciples are bending over, hands grabbing their knees, lungs gasping for air. They're probably leaning against some of the big rocks as sweat is running down on their faces and staining their shirts. And one by one, they start to look around them The watercolors of the late afternoon streak the sky. The yellow skies gathering at the bottom of the clouds and tinting them orange. To the west is the sunlit plains of the promised land. To the east is the slate blue water of the Mediterranean. To the south is the rich green Jordan Valley. They are halfway to heaven, or so it seems. Thousands of feet above sea level, They're cut off from all the world below. There's no no crowds with them. There's no torrents of controversy, only clouds and sky and a soft wind blowing on their face. And the climb up the mountain is long and steep, and as Jesus goes to pray, the disciples drift off to sleep. Now, we don't know what Jesus prayed for, but based on what he's just been talking about, I think we can safely guess a few things. He may have prayed 
for strength to descend into the valley of suffering that's waiting for him just ahead. He may have prayed for hope and love to help him through these coming dark days. He may have prayed for the disciples, that God would continue to change them, transform them into vessels for his work. We don't know what he prayed for. But what we do know is that God answered him in overwhelming glory. Light floods the mountaintop and wakes the disciples. And they wake up, they look up, rubbing their eyes, and standing before them is this radiant silhouette, as if a flash of lightning had hit the earth and stuck. Blinding in glory. The face of Jesus shines like the sun, and light flows from the folds of his garments. We call this the transfiguration. And I imagine the bewildered disciples uh, spring to their feet. Is this a dream? Is this a vision? Is this a hallucination? What's going on? And wonder, they have to shield their eyes from the brightness. But the light grows more intense. They can feel it flow through their bodies. And then they know this is no dream. This is no vision. This is no hallucination. This is reality. Up to now, the tent of Jesus' humanity has concealed his divinity. But now the flap on that tent is just lifted. And these disciples are given a glimpse of his glory. And in the light of that glory, all the beautiful things around them have paled. The blue sky, the green grass, the shimmering Mediterranean, the colorful flowers of the Jordan Valley, they're all washed out by the light. There's no depth or dimension to anything around them. Because now they see the Savior and the glory he will have in the kingdom. And there's no more thoughts uh, among them about who will be the greatest in the kingdom. All that sort of pales in significance. And as their eyes adjust, they now see Moses and Elijah standing beside Jesus. They stand there uh, next to him as men who've known the wilderness, as men who've endured suffering, as men who've experienced rejection by the very people they were called to save. If you think about it, I imagine Jesus must have longed to step off that mountain and go back with those men, these kindred spirits, go back to heaven to return home to his Father, to the honor and the glory that were rightfully uh, his. He could have been swept from the earth as Elijah had been. He could have been delivered by a miraculous exodus as Moses had been. But no chariot comes to whisk him away, and no miracles come to provide a way out of his suffering. But for now, they stand there together. The one who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets stands between the greatest lawgiver and the greatest prophet, being filled and strengthened and encouraged by them. Jesus needs all the strength and encouragement uh, that they can provide because that long trek to Jerusalem and the cross lies just ahead. And so for him, this moment on the mountaintop is a sacrament from heaven, a taste of the glory that awaits. But the sacredness of this moment is interrupted by a well-intentioned but clumsy attempt to memorialize the moment. Peter, a man known to open his mouth to change feet, comes, verse 4, P 
Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The parallel passage in Luke 9 adds this phrase at the end, not knowing what he said. (laughs) One writer says, I can't even imagine how Peter must have felt upon seeing the Savior's transfiguration and subsequently hearing God's voice commanding him and others to listen to Jesus. And immediately upon awakening, Peter witnesses Christ speaking to Moses and Elijah and immediately draws his own conclusions about the status of Moses and Elijah in relationship to Christ. Whether confused from his rude awakening or trying to put this humanistic point upon what he just witnessed, we don't know. Nevertheless, the voice of God corrects Peter's assertion. Perhaps we can be like Peter in that we jump to conclusions and we put supernatural events into humanistic explanations. Something like trying to put 100 pounds of potatoes in a one-pound bag. It just doesn't work. We're often so wrapped up in our own humanity that we don't allow God to reveal the supernatural to us, whether it's through his word or through his providence. We're accustomed to dealing with reality in human terms. So once again, Peter has gotten in the way. And once again, he's asked to step aside. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the mountain quakes with those words. And the disciples are stunned. The words have a different effect on Jesus. I think they're comforting words for Jesus. They're settling words for Jesus. They're words that he had heard already three years ago when he was baptized, right before he was tempted and tested by Satan in the wilderness. Back in Matthew 3, we read, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And those are the words he needs to hear now, right before he sets out for Jerusalem and the cross. But the words aren't just for Jesus, they're also for the disciples. See, the message that Jesus has been trying to get them to hear is crucial. He's going to suffer and die from the middle of chapter 16 to the middle of chapter 17. Three times he tells them, I have to suffer and die. I'm going to be killed. And it seems like they're not getting the message. He's trying to get them ready for that reality. And if reality is determined by majority vote, they're not voting for that. He told them before they even climbed the mountain. Peter refused to listen. He's going to tell them again after they leave the mountain. Eventually they're going to listen and understand and grieve. But for now they lift their eyes and they realize the cloud's gone, the light's gone, Moses is gone, Elijah's gone. It's as it was before. Only Jesus is there and they see him, only his face, only his eyes and now they listen. And years later Peter and John would write about what happened, what they saw that day. Peter is going to recount this several times, in fact. As we read in our responsive reading this morning, Peter wrote, 2 Peter 1, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And one day, many, many years later, a very elderly apostle John would testify, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14 he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. James is the only one of the three who doesn't record the event. And maybe he intended to, but he's the first of the apostles uh, to be martyred, and his life is cut short. And though he didn't write about this intense moment, this intense experience, surely it made an indelible impression. I love that word, indelible. There's a little definition in the footnote and sustains him for his own suffering and death. You know, he's the first example, even for all the rest of the apostles. What does it mean to suffer and die from Jesus? Look at James. He goes first. I wonder if he signed up for that. Pick me! I'll die first. That day on the mountain, the disciples see Jesus in a way they'd never seen him before. Before that day, they saw themselves on a fast train bound for glory. But what they didn't see was the road to glory passes through a tunnel of suffering. And Jesus asked his disciples then and now to follow him through the tunnel of suffering, which connects this life to the next. And they're going to have to stoop to enter, and they're going to have to leave everything behind to squeeze through the narrow opening. It's a small, long tunnel. And that's where the transfiguration fits in. Because it's quite literally the light at the end of the tunnel. It's a glimpse of his glory on the other side. And the way to that glory is not around suffering, but through it. And joy is found in the journey to that destination, not on a detour around it, not on any detour. And it's the reward of not only being with Christ, but sharing his glory that gives the disciples the strength to crawl through that tunnel. And so dazzling is the reward that whatever they have to go through, whatever they leave behind, pales in comparison. But to share Christ's glory means we have to share in his suffering. And trust me on this, you will suffer. You may not suffer persecution. You may not suffer in humiliation. But you will suffer. At the very least, you will suffer death. And who knows when that's going to be? I've buried a few people younger than me. And you may live a long time with few worries. And then you'll have to suffer through old age. And it's very hard to be the very elderly. And some of us are closer to that than others. When your body breaks down and your mind drifts away, that's real Suffering. My good friend Frank Pugh says, there are no heroes in elder care. At this very moment, my wife is in Massachusetts helping her mom and her younger sister, Jean, 
Her mom's 87 and is rapidly breaking down, both physically and mentally. Jean has already been diagnosed with early Alzheimer's because she has Down syndrome. And the vast majority of people with Downs get Alzheimer's. And even though she's younger than us, she's going to become elderly very soon. I just came back from visiting my parents in Florida. I can describe suffering to you. I have a mother who can't walk across her own kitchen. And I have a father who doesn't know who I am most of the time. And my father suffers watching my mother's physical disabilities. And my mother suffers watching my father's mental infirmities. I don't know what else I wrote here because I can't see it. My sister and I suffer watching both of them. Suffering doesn't come into your life by majority vote. It's part of our reality. It's part of Jesus' reality. And he wants us to know the cross comes before the crown. The humiliation comes before the exaltation. Suffering leads to glory, and you can't avoid it. Though Peter often said and did dumb things, he did listen that day on the mountain. Years later, he wrote to those who were as confused as he was regarding the role that suffering plays in the process of redemption. And he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's a connection between suffering and glory. That's the message of the transfiguration, the joy and glory that waits at the end. That's why denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus is not a burden. That's why losing our lives for his sake is not a chore. So what did you learn? Why should you know this? How will you respond? Because you see, this passage is critical to the Christian life. This passage is unique in giving us the hope to live the Christian life. And that's because this passage is all about unveiled glory. The transfiguration is an unveiling of the glory of the king. But until this moment, Jesus has been clothed in the humble garb of humanity, but now his disciples have been allowed to see his glory. And this intimate experience of God's glory rarely happens in a crowd. We need to pull away by ourselves in just a few, two or three, to see Jesus, to see his glory. These same disciples will see his agony in Gethsemane. Can you imagine that they experience the suffering of Gethsemane and of Calvary without having experienced the glory of the mountaintop, the glory of the transfiguration? I think if they had not seen the glory, the suffering would have left them hopeless. On the flip side, if they experienced nothing but the glory, the exaltation, without the suffering, without the humiliation, they would have been all puffed up and exalted themselves. 
There are seasons of glory and seasons of suffering, and Christ has been through both. And he goes with us through both. Jesus is transfigured. Transfiguration is actually related to our word metamorphosis. Changed from the inside out as the glory and splendor is made visible. And Jesus' glory is so bright. The glory of his deity is so dazzling. His clothes shone too. Remember when Moses saw God? What happened? His face shone. So much so they asked him to wear a veil. How much more with Jesus? Blazing, blinding light from the face of Jesus, the dazzling whiteness of his clothes, all a manifestation of the glory of God from within. Up to now, his glory has been veiled, but now it's made visible, the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. The disciples have been given a glimpse of the glory that he had from eternity past and the glory that will be his for all of eternity future. we got a preview of the future and his return in power and glory. In verse 4, Peter offers to make some tents, to set up some tents, really tabernacles. He wants to capture the moment, bottle the experience, you know, retain the glow. It's an amazing mountaintop experience. And where do you think that phrase, mountaintop experience, comes from? comes from this passage. Nobody wants to come down from the mountain. You know, reality is at the bottom of the mountain. Certainly not Peter. But had he forgotten what Jesus had told him about his impending suffering and death? It's hard to blame him. I mean, who wants to leave this? I'd rather stay up on the mountaintop than go to Jerusalem. However, Peter's plans get interrupted by the voice of God. And he is actually interrupted. Look at verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, it's a divine interruption. Bright cloud, voice from the cloud. This is different. The voice of God the Father emphasizes that Jesus is not just one of these three great men. He is the one and only, the incomparable Christ. This is my beloved son. Moses and Elijah are servants in God's house. Jesus is the beloved son. And the son never for one moment displeased the father. And the father is pleased with the sacrifice the son is about to make. And so he says, listen to him. In the middle of the transfiguration, we get a command. Listen to him. It's better to hear Jesus than to see Moses and Elijah back from the dead. And yet the Lord has spoken through his prophets, but in these latter days there's a greater prophet. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has sent his only begotten Son. Listen to him, for when he speaks, God speaks. This is the counsel that we need for our day, for our time, for our life. Listen to Jesus. <coughs> you don't know what to say? Listen to Jesus. You don't know what to do? Listen to Jesus. You're surrounded by Bible uh, preachers and elders and teachers and leaders. Don't make idols out of them. We all fall. Listen to Jesus. When you're tempted to give in, when you're tempted to give God directions, tell God what he ought to be doing, listen to Jesus. When you think you know what to do next, 
Put away your foolish plans. Listen to Jesus. What did the disciples do? Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. I thought about, why don't we fall on our face very much anymore? Come, we're not falling on our faces in our churches today. I'm not sure how to answer that, except maybe we're not listening to God. They were overcome by the voice of God, even more than by the sight of glory. It's the power of God's word. Given who he is, everything depends on listening to Jesus. Listen to him. Here's some of what he said, John 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. John 8, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. That takes more literal meaning now, doesn't it? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The only real question is whether or not you come to him, you listen to him, and you follow him. What did you learn? How will you respond? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Again, in another passage, we see your son. We see light. We see glory. Open our eyes so that we might really see Jesus. Help us to be those who see and understand. Help us to be those who hear and obey. Help us to be those who listen and follow. May your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who comes not trusting in Christ, that he would come to him, he would listen to him, that he would follow him. By your spirit, you would draw that person, that man, that woman to yourself that they might embrace the beloved Son and help all of us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.